What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Kimberly Corbin and Kara Robinson-Chamberlain are victim advocates and survivors that both turned their traumas into careers in the criminal justice and media spaces. Although their experiences are different in nature, what came next in their journeys have heavily affected their shared mission in the true crime space. They both hope to inspire awareness and healing in the survivor community through their many media efforts, which range from public speaking gigs to a scripted film. They also recently celebrated the launch of their own podcast, Survivor's Guide to True Crime, and I am so grateful they were willing to discuss the layeredness of their experiences with us today. My name's Kimberly Corbin, and I'm so excited to be joining you with Kara today. I am a survivor advocate that lives in Colorado. I've got four kiddos, a husband, two dogs, lots of fun chaos in my life, and am the co-host of Survivor's Guide to True Crime. I'm Kara Robinson-Chamberlain. I am also a mom of two and a third coming sometime next year. I also have a crazy dog, a husband, and some chickens. I also, with Kim, host Survivor's Guide to True Crime. It's hard to identify my life before trauma simply because I grew up in what I would categorize as a chaotic household. I was loved and I was not abused, but I would not say that I had a peaceful, idyllic childhood without trauma. I was an only child. My parents fought consistently fighting, punching holes through walls, and one of them taking me from the other one consistently. So a lot of my earliest memories are somewhat traumatic. I feel like that prepared me for my future. I was 15 years old. I was at my friend's house. I had spent the night. A stranger pulled into the driveway when I was outside watering the plants. At that point, he approached me under the guise of distributing pamphlets in order to get close enough to me he was able to put a gun to my neck and kidnap me at gunpoint. He took me to his apartment where I was for 18 hours and I was sexually assaulted multiple times while I was there. The next morning, I escaped while he was sleeping. I ran out the front door and was taken to law enforcement by some men who were driving through the parking lot early morning, told law enforcement what had happened. They were able to respond to the apartment with the information that I had given them, identify my captor, who was then on the run for about two days until he was located in Florida. There was a short police chase that ended in him committing suicide. 
Shortly after that, he was linked to the murders of at least three girls in Virginia in 1996 and 1997. So the immediate months afterwards, I was dissociated through the events. I compartmentalized everything that happened to me. Because of that, I went back into my community and my home and I said, I'm fine. Everyone, please stop walking on eggshells around me. I am fine. In a lot of ways, I genuinely was because I had tightly compartmentalized that. But I did not realize for 15 years what the negative implications of that dissociation and me saying I'm fine was. I had never seen anyone respond to trauma in the way I responded to trauma. All I had seen was what I had seen on TV at that point. I had heard of PTSD, but I didn't feel like I had PTSD, not as it was defined at that time anyway. The knowledge that we have now, absolutely, I had PTSD. It actually took 15 years for me to realize what that looked like. For me, it was most heavily tied to my dissociation. I had a lot of bodily symptoms of trauma. Most notably was that I couldn't breathe. I didn't take a deep breath for 15 years. All of my trauma was stuck in my chest. So I had to learn how to release that. I also dissociated so heavily that I would have flat affect. I would only feel anger. That was the only emotion that got through. It took a lot of self-reflection because at that point I was not in therapy. It was not something that was accessible. And I realized feelings weren't safe for me. My body decided when I was in my capital T trauma and before in my childhood that emotions weren't safe. Survival was what was important, shutting down my emotions. To a certain extent, it was a conscious decision for me. It took years, but I've learned how to just feel things. I had to learn how to take my body out of active stress because it was stuck. Especially if you experience trauma at a young age, your parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest or your fight or flight, gets stuck in fight or flight. My body was stuck in fight or flight for 15 plus years, probably before that. I had to learn ways to calm my nervous system so that it could begin to heal. I don't feel like I'm done. I still fall back into those things. But as far as resources, I was not accessing any of those. And then when I realized that maybe I could have used some of them, they were no longer available. I was outside of the window of eligibility. I worked in law enforcement this summer after I was kidnapped. The sheriff called my mom and asked if I wanted to come and have a summer job there. I started working at the sheriff's department when I was 16 administratively and continued to work there through high school and college. Then when I graduated college was when I became a sworn law enforcement officer. They became like another family to me. I was everyone's little sister and daughter there. People wonder how I worked in law enforcement as a trauma survivor. Honestly, it was because of that coping mechanism that I developed so early in my life. It was always something that I could talk about like it happened to someone else. So for me, the way I compartmentalized my trauma, there actually isn't very much of an emotional component embedded in those memories. It's strictly a bodily component, what things felt like in my body. And then there's a visual component, which is like a snapshot as opposed to a video. A photo has much less emotional impact. So for me, there was not very much emotional impact when thinking about what happened to me. So I never found things triggering because there weren't emotions to be triggered. We think that there's going to be coverage whenever someone is missing. When I escaped, 
there was some local coverage, but really the coverage began to roll in the most when he was linked to these homicides in Virginia that was making international and national news. That was the point that things got to be a little more real, but I lived in a community where everyone kind of knew anyway. One of the local sheriffs was giving details to the local papers that were not released. I had a situation where the incident report and my name was released to an author who wrote a book a couple of years later and included details that were only in the incident report. So I had varying experiences with media. Not many of them were positive. It more or less led to me not wanting to have anything to do with it. I never had a problem sharing my story, but I was always open to sharing it to anyone who was interested in hearing it. I began doing keynote services and telling my story publicly in the hopes that it would help someone. All of that changed when I went to the academy. News started coming back out. You guys remember this case from 2002? Well, look, here she is. She's in law enforcement now. My academy graduation was more or less hijacked. And I realized, okay, I can't hide who I am. And slowly started coming out more and more, which has led to still a variety of responses and reactions over the years. I kind of had the opposite childhood. I'm the oldest of two. My brother is a couple years younger than me. I grew up in a bubble. I had no trauma to speak of. I was loved and cared for. My parents are still together after many, many years. I grew up involved in a ton of sports, great student, was very competitive with that sports-minded mentality. It set me up for the support that I received later on. When I was 20 years old, I was going into my junior year of college at the University of Northern Colorado. A stranger broke into our college apartment, held me captive for two hours, and sexually assaulted me. I did my best to collect as much evidence as possible during that assault and actually took a tact to start talking to him and convince him that I was not going to tell, at which time he then left my apartment, left me alive. I called 911 immediately, got all of the information to them, went through the entire reporting process, same examination. After weeks of searching, the police department located this man at an adjacent complex he was taking pictures of women that were sunbathing without their knowledge, picking out his next victim. He was held on a million-dollar bond. We went through the entire court process. I had never had more than a speeding ticket, so totally foreign concept to me, to my support system. But every single time we had any kind of hearing, it wasn't just me that was showing up. It was my family, my friends from high school, my entire sorority, community members, people from college. I was supported every single step of the way. I had to sit up on that stand and talk about these awful details in serious descriptive words. It wasn't how I felt about it. It wasn't anything that I would normally talk about if I was having a conversation. It was the right hand. And then it moved to left shoulder. I had to go and start doing something called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a type of therapy that can be combined with cognitive behavioral or other modalities, but it definitely helped me get a handle on my stress, learn some of my triggers, and be able to get up on that stand and testify. We were scheduled for a five-day jury trial. The first day was opening statements, and I was the first witness to go up there. EMDR helped because we were able to work on something called Future Template which made it so that when I walked through the court doors, it was almost as if I was experiencing deja vu. 
It helped me because the defendant's mother was standing right outside the doors trying to intimidate me before I went in. I didn't realize what a toll it was taking on me. Frankly, I was the last one to notice it. It was all of my support people around me that are like, hey, there's some behaviors that are definitely different from before Kim. And now this after Kim is going out binge drinking. It was a stark contrast to what I had been doing before. And that's, I think, the big kicker when you're looking to assess and see if something maybe is trauma related. It was a big difference for me to finally get a grasp on the fact that I have PTSD depression, and I'm going through some pretty significant stress related to this trial was tough. I was addressing these concerns through therapy, through victims' compensation, which is something that is available in every state in some capacity. Here in Colorado, you're able to file for it for a crime, and they will cover your therapy bills. That's the first time that I had been to therapy. Thank goodness I got in there because about a month before trial, when we're doing all of the prep leading up to it, I developed a disorder called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures related to PTSD. So they're not epileptic seizures. They are literally my brain shutting down. It manifests looking like a seizure, but it is an overload of stress on your brain that you just can't handle and it shuts it down. My case when it was first reported was just a little blurb inside of our local paper. Then once he was arrested, it hit the Denver stations. And so it was pretty much just Colorado media that was covering it. When it went to trial, though, that's when we had a lot more coverage daily, whether it was from our local paper or some of the surrounding areas or the Denver news stations, because it's a college co-ed. It's a stranger that broke in and it actually goes to trial. That rarely happens. But I became familiar with the term, if it bleeds, it leads. And this was something that was sensational. I didn't see a downside to the media coverage at all. I came from a place where I was excited when I was in the newspaper because it meant that I was in there for accomplishments, whether it was sports or something extracurricular, usually sports-wise. To see my story and no name, no face, and nothing but black and white facts from an affidavit in the paper shook me up. I didn't really make that correlation until we're getting closer and closer to trial. I'm having seizures. I'm having to drop out of school. I have all of these different mental health issues that have sprung up as a direct relation to this event where I'm thinking, okay, this is how it's covered. And I know I'm not the only one who's going through this. That needs to change. Leading up to the trial, I actually started working with a reporter from our hometown paper, met with her a few times so that she was sure that she got the story right. She did all of the things that we talk about and we preach now about ethical true crime, even back then in 2007, when there wasn't that same playbook. She came up to me after we got that verdict and she said, okay, Kim, are you sure you want to do this? I said, yep, absolutely. They ran the story the next day in the paper and it was on the front page. Of course, the Denver news stations and everything are covering it. They had that story with my name and my face. I said, I don't care if you remember those things. I want you to remember my story and the impacts this had. Again, they ran one on Sunday, had all the editorial stuff in it. My whole purpose with sharing all along had been, if it can help one person not have to experience what I did, then this will all be worth it. And I didn't know this until many years later, but that Monday morning, the Weld County District Attorney's Office that had just prosecuted my case got a call from a 78-year-old woman who had gone through similar circumstances, except she was an uncooperative victim. She didn't want to tell friends and family. She didn't want to participate. She definitely didn't want to testify. She calls her victim advocate and she said, okay, I read the paper this weekend and if Kim can do it, so can I. 
And that fall, she got on the stand and put a serial rapist away for the rest of his life. I didn't know that for many, many years, but it was that instant ripple effect from sharing a story and a perspective and being vulnerable in that way with media that responded correctly. It just was such a testament what these stories and using our voices can do. When I got up on the stand, I was there for about three hours, endured a grueling cross-examination. But afterwards, I was released from my subpoena and able to sit in the front row with my parents and all of these other people that had been there to support me. At the end of that trial, the jury found him guilty of burglary and of sex assault. We secured a conviction in June of 2007. He was sentenced in September of 2007 to 24 years to life in the Department of Corrections here in Colorado. After they've completed a pre-sentencing investigation, you have people from the Sex Offender Management Board that will do all kinds of different assessments to see what kind of risk they may pose to the community so that a judge has informed decision-making. It was my time to talk about the actual ripple effect. Here's how this impacted me, my family, my friends, all of the people that you see before me. Here's why the decision you're about to make about this man's sentence is going to continuously impact not just us, but this entire community. That was my closure. Why am I still feeling this way? Having to relearn that, that isn't the closure that you're going to deal with this for the rest of your life. You are sentenced to life regardless of what that offender's sentence is. From the time that I was assaulted, which was May of 2006, to when we had that sentencing hearing after a pre-sentencing investigation had been completed, that was in September of 2007. So all in all, about 16 months. The justice system itself took roughly about a year from the time that he was actually captured. That's quick. People are so used to that CSI, we have an answer after this commercial break. That's not the case at all. This drags on most times for years. Kara and I, we are statistical anomalies. We understand that the chances of what happened to us are very small, but then on top of that, the justice and the results that we received through different capacities are also very small. I can't speak for Kara, but at least for me, when I first started speaking out, I did it from a naive standpoint because I thought, well, everyone gets this kind of treatment, right? You call after something happens, they catch the guy, the guy goes to jail. It wasn't until I started realizing when people would whisper to me quietly at a party or after class or something that this was a huge problem. And it doesn't typically happen the way that it is for me. People look to stories like that as there may be some semblance of justice out there. There may be the hope that even if my story doesn't look the same, that my voice can still hold weight, hold power. I've loved being able to see other people figure that out. A victim to a survivor who is public and speaking wasn't ever a trajectory that I thought I was going to be on. It wasn't as if this happens and now I'm going to be a public speaker. It was kind of the opposite because you want to remain anonymous. And then when you find that purpose and that passion that is deep within your gut, and you know that you are doing the right thing for the right reason, you're going to continuously pursue that passion. And that's what I felt. Being able to share my story was taking back that power, rewriting the narrative so that it wasn't just some cautionary table. It was a story of survival and being able to become who you were supposed to be despite what happened to you. The first time I ever spoke was to peer advocates in our Assault Survivors Advocacy Program at the university my peers sat around a conference table and basically just told them what happened. And then I let them ask questions. 
I knew that if they asked me something I wasn't comfortable with answering, it was something I needed to work on in therapy. So it was a great little feedback loop, very validating and helped me reclaim some of my power. I started working with media. They would reach out to me for comment on other things, other cases, legislative action, or a bill that was being proposed. I liked lending my voice to those things as I was actively going through victim advocacy training, working for the police department, and then later for the district attorney's office. It gave me the opportunity to speak to something that was near and dear to my heart, but also be able to speak up for the people who aren't there yet. I remember what it felt like being just another face in the crowd, listening to this poor woman tell her story of how her case went the exact opposite of mine, how awful it was, how mistreated she had been, that she wasn't believed, and being able to do nothing about it. When it comes to legislative action, you need the survivors at the table if you are going to make decisions that greatly impact their life. It's never been about making it me or my story. It has always been about pushing things forward for the betterment of survivors and the treatment of those people who have been victimized in the worst ways. That has led to a lovely career in criminal justice, predominantly in media relations and being able to help behind the scenes. Sometimes preparing a victim to speak out for the first time, that really is one of my most favorite things. The proud feeling that I get from watching someone else realize that they have that strength within them too is beyond words. It makes everything else worth it. I was sharing my story simply because I was asked. I was okay sharing it. It wasn't difficult. And so I would share my story. That changed when I got pregnant with my first child. I realized I was putting a lot of effort, time and energy into this. I didn't necessarily know what was driving the train. It was kind of like you get in your car and you're going for a drive, but you don't know where you're going. It was more or less aimless. I realized that meant public speaking wasn't for me, or maybe I needed to take a break. But either way, it was not going to be something that I was doing. So took a couple years to raise children, to heal. Then the first request that came in that I decided I wanted to do was an interview with Elizabeth Smart. I thought that's an interview that I would be interested in doing because I know she's not going to sensationalize it. I had done interviews for media where things had just been sensationalized and I wasn't comfortable with the end result. So I did that. There was this moment in the interview where Elizabeth asked, why are you talking about it now? Why now? And I said, I didn't talk about it a ton to people who did not already know what happened because there's a look people give you when they find out your story. And I said, do you know the look, Elizabeth? And she said, oh, I know the look. And that was the moment that really changed the path that I was on. I realized I had never sat down across from someone who actually understood what I had been through, who could look at me and say, I know the look. I realized that was my purpose. That then became my why. I was in a very unique position where I got to sit down across from Elizabeth Smart. How many people in this world have been through something difficult and not be able to sit down across from someone and feel seen and heard in what they've experienced. That became my why. I decided I wanted to share. People will feel seen. People will therefore be able to heal. It took a lot of self-searching and vulnerability for me to realize what that looked like putting my story out there in social media, doing keynotes, doing media in general, led to me finding a team to do a documentary, do a movie, a book, launching a podcast, meeting Kim, all of the things.
We were both on TikTok in the early days, so like 2020. There weren't a lot of people sharing vulnerable content, public facing survivors. We knew who else was out there and pretty much immediately connected. The big difference is the kind of content that we were making sort of had that humor edge to it. We're exercising our dark humor, but also doing it with a purpose that people are connecting with in a really genuine way. There weren't all of the different algorithms and there weren't any ads and really there weren't businesses on TikTok yet. It was phenomenal. So the audiences that we built really felt like a community. They picked up the story Kara had made in video form on BuzzFeed. That was the first time that we ever actually talked. She's like, oh, shit, it's taken off. And we got on FaceTime to talk media relations. We're on for like three hours and it's been the same ever since. (laughs) You can sit across from somebody and you don't have to explain all the backstory and you can make what seemed to other people as giant leaps. When Kara and I first started talking about what this might look like, the first thing we did was try to go live together on TikTok. We want to have these conversations that we are having offline in a way that would benefit those who aren't ready to have them, but they want to listen. It took a long time. And thankfully, the encouragement and help from a really great friend of ours to put these plans on paper and say, okay, we're going to start fleshing out what this actually looks like. What we ended up with was Survivor's Guide to True Crime. That name alone took forever to get to. And the logo design took forever because there's so much we have kicked around and encompassed in our time as victim advocates that we wanted to portray in this story where it isn't just us. Yeah, we're going to host it, but this isn't our show. It's everyone else's. We lend these microphones and this space to each guest to tell their story in the way that they find authentic in a way that will help the people who are listening. Every single one is going to look different. It's going to sound different. But being able to share that with audiences, I can't tell you the fulfillment that gives me at least. That is the passion that drives us to continuously keep doing this. Now, yes, of course, we're learning things along the way. But the ability to bring people along for that ride in a way that's authentic and genuinely cares about what they're learning and opening our eyes to different perspectives has been awesome. We settled on the guide to true crime because we are never going to get away from that true crime industry. We have true crime stories. We are a product of true crime. But what we can do is provide this guidebook that everyone can look at and make their own notes in the margins that they can write on this guidebook, this map, if you will, that's going to work best for them. We're simply giving them the tools to create their own guide. Kim and I were working in spaces and having conversations offline, but it wasn't just the two of us either. We were working with other survivors and we continuously found ourselves coming back to a lot of the same topics, a lot of the same feelings, even though we try to have a variety of experts or survivors on our podcast who have very different stories, look very different than us. We still find a lot of commonalities. Every single week, we get messages from people who say, I never have thought of that that way, or I've never heard anyone speak to this way that I feel. And for us, that's what it's about. That's where this idea came from. That was our deepest desire and hope that people would not feel so alone. Because let's face it, not everyone has the community and the support around them of people who just get it. So if we can put that out into the world and we can help people to find that, then that's what this is about.
That's why we're doing it. We've only been going since February, so we're still fairly new, but it's Kara and I out here producing, editing, running our Patreon and social media, just really enjoying all of these light bulb moments and conversations that are happening. We intentionally came out the gate with our most high profile guests because we have these friends in these higher spaces. We have Elizabeth Smart, JC Dugard, and Amanda Knox, all of these gigantic media known names. But one thing that we are able to do because we're all survivors is we are able to sit in those spaces and have very authentic conversations because we've been there. We do infuse some dark humor, but it's part of our survival mechanisms. The whole purpose behind this isn't to talk about the crime. It's to talk about the hope and the inspiration that happens afterwards. Those conversations are born of a place that everyone knows is safe and encouraging, and that's where the real work starts to happen. It's meant to be a conversation amongst friends instead of an interview. Every single time we get off of one of these interviews, both of us are like, that was amazing because it's so energizing and fun to see all of this hard work paying off and being able to share that space. We are consistently finding that most people who have been through true crime or who have survived something difficult don't consume your traditional true crime. We always say that it's about survivors, it's by survivors, and it's for survivors. And the biggest part, too, is that we are not here to shame you. All we want to do is open your eyes to what goes into the creation of that content. And is there a way that you can help make it different? We are so hyper aware of the ethicality of creating true crime content in a way that we are proud to stand behind and how freaking hard it is to balance that with this desire to create content that people will actually consume. We knew that we had to hit certain analytics and how do we do that in a way that is ethical? We knew that we wanted certain things in our logo, but how do we do that in a way that grabs people's attention, but is also ethical? Trying to weave that balance and then create content that we're proud of. It is hard. The autonomy that our survivors maintain throughout this process is of paramount importance to us. When I go through and I am editing an episode, if there is even a mention of a name, I'm checking to make sure, hey, is this okay? Do you want this included? I want the finished product to be something that they are proud to share on their social media, to put their name on and to say, everything in this is representative of me because I had an active part in creating it. So many producers and content creators in this space do not want to take the time to do that because God forbid one of the survivors say, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, what if that was the juiciest soundbite? Who freaking cares? It's not yours. There's so many digital consent issues that keep popping up. Karen and I, we don't think twice about because we're treating our guests the way that we would want to be treated with our stories. Having that mutual respect, again, creates and lends to that safe place to have those conversations. Everything that they say is going to be protected until their stamp of a final approval is on that. Sometimes that means making edits to an episode two hours before it goes out. I think the biggest change needs to be that consumers and content creators need to remember that there are people at the center of these stories that you are talking about the worst moments of these people's lives. I think everything kind of flows downhill from there. 
the biggest things that we come back to time and time again is that the people whose stories are being told, that they have consent to tell that story, that they're involved if possible, that they're compensated when possible. That's kind of the benchmark. The most important thing is taking care of those people and remembering that it's not just a story. Paying victims and survivors who are willingly sharing their stories. I think that's something we run into constantly, especially with news organizations. We can't pay you. It's the news. Well, that's great and all, but I have no doubt that you would pay someone else to talk about leadership qualities. There is a sense of entitlement to true crime stories and the people who have gone through those that really cross swords with that theme of consent. Where we are seeing the biggest breakdown is that because you think you are entitled to this story, you also think that survivor should not have ownership and should not have any sort of compensation for it. I've been paid for doing my own hair and makeup before. Yeah, we aren't telling you to pay us to tell our story. We're telling you to pay us for the expertise because we are now experts in this field to speak to you about trauma, resilience, the things that survivors can overcome, the legislation that's on the table, how it will impact us, what's the law enforcement side of things look like, what is the mentality of survivors as a whole, all the things that we immerse ourselves with when we are deducted only to, well, I heard your 911 call was public record and so I can use that now. What a slap in the face. You just spoke to something really important too, is that representation. Many different types of communities have been underrepresented up until now. The victim community is definitely one that needs to be represented more in terms of the creation of content. So that speaks to having the involvement of the person who is the said subject. Entitlement is the same thing that sexual assault and gender-based violence comes from. It's an entitlement. Are you saying that the community that steals these stories is the same that say you're wearing a short skirt so you were asking for it? Oh my goodness, the parallels. Weird. We'll get there. It's something that we have to deconstruct. There are certain things that we can deconstruct in our own patterns that lend credibility to that mindset, even if we aren't the ones who are specifically doing it. We have to be able to not only see that in ourselves, but be able to call it out in others. And that's a scary leap. You're not defined by what happened to you. I think that's the crux of why Kim and I get kind of up in arms about the way we're treated sometimes in media and in society. It's because we are multidimensional, complex humans. We're not defined by this thing that happened. In a lot of ways, it has made us who we are, but it doesn't make us. And so just remembering if you are working with survivors, if you are working with victims, if you are a survivor or a victim, or you've been through something difficult, just remembering that's not all of who you are. You are so much more than that. And acknowledging it doesn't mean it defines you. It propels you in a direction. I always say that what happened to me did not define me, but it refined me. It made me a different version of myself. I healed and was able to pick up the things from that situation that made me stronger. That's a brilliant saying, by the way. Thanks. I think it might be my book title. I'm going to share with you my little sage knowledge, and I wish I could remember who said this first, but do not accept criticism from someone you would not go to for advice. And everything else can revolve around that. You obviously have developed an amazing tool in Survivor's Guide to True Crime. What tools or resources did you either create 
or found and used to get through the most complex parts of your trauma. When it comes to utilizing things that have helped us, dark humor is a big one. So we just put microphones to it and ta-da, all of you fine people are now our therapists. But beyond that, of course, on my front, an organization that I've been involved with since 2009 is In Violence Against Women International. It's a fantastic organization that predominantly started because it was for training law enforcement, prosecutors, forensic nurses, victim advocates, people who are serving survivor populations on the front lines about how to better respond to or be trauma-informed when it comes to working with survivors and ultimately moving those cases for a justice-filled outcome. Now, it has evolved over the years into this massive international organization that does so many valuable trainings across the board. They have an incredible conference, but they also started the Start by Believing program. It is as simple and yet complex as it sounds. It's a philosophy that when someone comes to you and discloses that they have been abused, you start by believing. That can be really hard, but someone's giving you this information. It's not your job to ask questions or to judge or do anything, except I see you, I hear you. Be that person's advocate. You start by believing them. You get to change the world and hold more offenders accountable. I mentioned that I did a lot of the healing work myself. I like to share those whenever I'm able, just because there may be someone listening that's like, how do I do that? If we don't feel safe, we can't connect, but we also can't heal. There are different ways that you can activate your rest and digest symptom. I love sharing these with people because they're simple tools that are free to learn and free to do, and they're fast. You can do them anywhere. Things like parasympathetic breath work. All that is, is exhaling longer than you inhale. So inhale for a count of four, exhale for a count of eight. You can do three and six, whatever feels comfortable for you. And that actually activates your parasympathetic nervous system. So that's a tool that I personally have had to utilize a lot lately. There are tools like emotional freedom therapy, which is tapping. You can also activate your vagus nerve. That is done through exercises like humming, blowing through a straw. You can actually tap on the vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve is the longest nerve in your body. It controls your rest and digest system as well. So simple little tricks like that can bring you out of that active stress. If you feel triggered, you can also apply cold things to your vagus nerve. Those are some of the resources and things that have helped me in my healing journey that I like to tell people. I've also gotten involved with In Violence Against Women International. I've been doing more work with local organizations to me. If anyone is listening and they think that they want to make a difference, that's always my first step to advise them to take is look for your local resources, your local helping centers, your victims advocacy centers that provide counseling, provide resources for victims in your community and try to get involved there. Anyone can be victimized, but you can also move yourself to a survivor. Not every day is going to be good when you're a victim. And there are still days that I do feel like a victim. But for the most part, I choose to live my life as a survivor. That does not negate what happened to me. It doesn't mean that it isn't important. It is that I am now going to take control of this situation, of my life, of my reactions, and make them worth something. Even if that worth is just to you in that one day, if you do something for yourself, that's surviving and fighting through it. Sometimes it means getting up on a stage and talking to a group of 5,000 people and your message is amplified. Some days it means that you got out of bed and you brushed your teeth. Both of those are okay. I think granting yourself the nuance and the ability to be in that moment makes you a survivor. I want to commend you both deeply 
I believe we kind of have to own the word victim in order to truly become a survivor. Not that we have to live in that state of being a victim. That's a very nuanced part of the discussion. But neither of you said, I'm not a victim. You both honored the fact that you were victimized. And at some days, that journey looks different. But you're both clearly very tenacious survivors. Where can people follow you beyond Survivor's Guide to True Crime? Make sure you check out our website, Survivor's Guide to True Crime. Kara and I both have all of our social media stuff linked to everything on Survivor's Guide. We run our own social media, so be patient, but also we love interacting there. Instagram is probably our favorite, but you'll still catch us sometimes on TikTok. We both have our own websites as well. You can find me at KimberlyCorbin.com. And you can find me at KaraRobinsonChamberlain.com. Another cool thing that we have been asked to start doing that is really exciting are doing joint presentations. So we've done a couple of these now. We have more coming up. But if you are someone out there who is interested in learning from both of us and combining our expertise, we are happy to accommodate. You can reach out on either of our websites or on Survivor's Guide to True Crime. We love interacting and building this community and making those connections that really will last a lifetime. Thank you so much, both of you. You are both spectacular. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. That is really how things played out for many years. 2012, I was in court 13 times just that year alone. So that gives you insight to the level of conflict. I was very good about choosing my battles wisely. It wasn't financial. I had actually decided to walk away from everything and rebuild my life. My 100% focus was the safety of my kids. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.